0: Welcome you to week seven of our summer series called Law School, uh, which we have titled Law School because in this series we are moving through the law of God, more commonly known as the Ten Commandments. Today, as we are in week seven of this series, we are going to be in the seventh commandment, which states, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And so uh, the passage we're going to be in to help us understand that commandment is Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 23. Um, let me go ahead and read that and we'll begin. Verse 15 says Drink water from your own cistern, water flowing from your own well. Should your springs flow in the streets, streams of water in the public squares? They should be for you alone and not for you to share with strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful fawn, let her breasts always satisfy you. Be lost in her love forever. Here we go. (laughs) Why, my son, would you be infatuated with a forbidden woman... Or embrace the breast of a stranger. For a man's ways are before the Lord's eyes, and he considers all his paths. A wicked man's iniquities entrap him, he is entangled in the ropes of his own sin. He will die because there is no discipline, and be lost because of his great stupidity. This is God's Word. So, Let's get the seat backs and tray tables in their full upright and locked positions. Let's just start with this. I feel a little uncomfortable even reading that verse out loud, uh, let alone giving a 30-minute one-way speech on what that passage of Scripture means, uh, live-streamed and recorded online forever. So the first question I want to speak to is why, Ryan, would you do this to yourself, or to your church, and i want to give two answers to that. Number one, this passage is fundamentally about a father trying to instill wisdom in his son regarding the dangers of adultery. And so it's a tailor-made passage, um, a perfect passage, really, for helping us understand the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery and all that it means. But, but second to that, the reason I thought it was valuable, even if it might be a little uncomfortable, whatever... It's valuable for us as a church to spend a Sunday morning in a passage like this because, and this is basically the assumption that I've carried into this whole teaching, here it is, Um, we are, as a society, sexually out of control. Um, C.S. Lewis has this great anecdote, I'm going to paraphrase, where he says, uh, you know, he's writing this almost 100 years ago, but he said, uh, you know, you can fill a theater with people um, that are there to see a, you know, a striptease act. Obviously, that was, he's writing before there was such thing as, you know, the internet and all that kinds of stuff. So uh, he said, you could fill a theater with people that are there to see a, you know, a striptease act. <clears throat> he said, imagine if you went to a country where uh, theaters were filled with people um, who wanted to see somebody bring a, a covered tray of food up on stage And then, right before the lights went out, they slowly revealed, you know, mutton chops and bacon, and everybody cheered and lost their mind, and they bought tickets to see it again the next time the show was in town. The conclusion that you would arrive at is that uh, in that country something had gone wrong with their appetite for food. And in a similar way, and it was really his point. Um, And again, he was writing this a long time ago. I'm certainly his hair'd be blown back if he was alive and well today. That um, anybody objectively looking at our society has to arrive at the conclusion that as a society, something has gone wrong with our appetite for sex. Now, uh, Proverbs <clears throat> is basically a book that is it, it's, it's Old Testament Hebrew wisdom literature. And really, the purpose of the book of Proverbs, it, it's designed to help you avoid ruining your life. That's basically what it's about. Uh, it's kind of like the stated you know goal of of proverbs, and if you read it end to end and it 's a pretty short book you'll probably be surprised at how often the topic of sexuality is brought up in the book of proverbs and there's a there 's a subtle kind of implied statement there and the the the, the implied statement is that if and i 'll make it personal if you can't figure out how to handle your own sexuality if if you can't figure out um the proper context for that and how to use it wisely, you're gonna make a mess of your own life. And I don't know how that um, concept could be reasonably refuted any longer. Uh, Because you know I could pull anecdotes and stories and quotes, I just don't need to, you hear about them almost every day. Um, There are countless stories of people whose lives have been ruined because they were either the subject or the object of what I'm just gonna call misused sexuality. We do not know what to do with sex in our culture, and that is largely um, due to the fact that we don't, know what to th- we don't even know how to think about it. And what I mean by that is that in our culture, there are, there are two misconceptions <clears throat> about human sexuality that are rampant, and um, they have led to all kinds of disillusionment and dysfunction and turmoil in people's lives. Um, And I'm going to call them, um, on the one hand, the prudish view of sex, and then on the other hand, the pagan view of sex. And as I walk through these, I would just ask you, would you please, you know, make yourself vulnerable enough, um, and would you please be curious enough to really search yourself and and ask to what degree you have been affected by one of these kind of ideas or approaches to sexuality, the prudish and the pagan view. So the prudish view of sex is one that sees sex as basically wrong and taboo and kind of dirty. This is usually more common in people who grew up in homes where sex was either not talked about at all or it was talked about in a way that it was clearly clearly negative. You know, it's this kind of shameful, you know, necessary evil, you know, borderline dangerous thing. But then, of course, the moment you get married, it's the greatest thing in the world and you should have lots of it. The problem with that is that when you are conditioned your whole life to view sex in such a negative light, that's a very difficult thing to just kind of, you know, shift gears and, and, you know, flip a switch the moment you meet somebody in an altar and say, I do. And so that's led to untold amounts of um, intimacy issues. <clears throat> On the other, hand, uh, other end of the spectrum, you have what I'm just going to call the pagan view of sex. And this is a view, this is the predominant view in our culture. Uh, that views sex as just an appetite and and nothing else. It's just like every other appetite, meaning when you feel a desire for it, just like you would with hunger or thirst or fatigue, uh, you should seek to fulfill that desire in basically whatever way you want to. And as we In our late modern post-Christian society, the further we kind of spiral into secularism and the further we get away from our Judeo-Christian roots, the more that it is basically incomprehensible for for people to not think of sexuality that way. To think of, you know, saying no to a sexual desire just seems like anathema to more and more people in our culture. And so the, the prudish view basically in a nutshell says sex is bad, you should kill your passions, The pagan view of sexuality says sex is just an appetite. You should follow your passions wherever they take you. The Bible says that both of those views of sexuality are wrong. And what's really interesting is that as different as those two views of sexuality appear on the surface... As much as people that are kind of embedded in those camps hate each other and revile each other and write articles against each other and think that people in the other camp are really what's wrong with the world and their ideology is dangerous and all that kind of stuff, the Bible says both of those approaches to sexuality are wrong for the same fundamental reason, that they both have too low a view of sex. That the prudish view fails to recognize its goodness, whereas the pagan view fails to recognize its power. And so I've settled that to kind of lay the foundation for what we're going to spend our time talking about this morning. What I would like to do is show you how the Bible um, challenges both the prudish and pagan view of sexuality by looking at what this passage tells us about, first off, the goodness of sex, uh, secondly, the power of sex, and then we'll, we'll end... Um, talking about the purpose and context um, of sex. So with that, let's just get into it. Um, Let's talk first and foremost about its goodness. So if I can just kind of address the elephant in the room here. For a lot of people, both in and outside the church, one of the most awkward or the most unappealing or the most unattractive Teachings of Christianity and teachings of the Bible is its views on sexuality, and in, in a culture as as kind of sexually obsessed with ours uh, as ours is, um, a lot of people kind of standing outside the Bible have this. I've come up against this, and maybe you know you you think this yourself, or maybe you've had conversations with people who think this. A lot of people tend to have this perception that the Bible has this overtly negative view of sex. That perception I would offer to you tends to dissipate when you look at what the Bible actually says specifically in passages like the one we're in today. Because as I mentioned earlier, this passage is a, um, it's a father attempting to instill wisdom in his son by warning him about the danger of adultery. But he does so not with like a scared straight kind of program, but by holding up the beauty of God's design and the goodness of God's design for human sexuality. So let me just, as we walk through this, um, let me draw your attention to two things here. And, and I, you know, as I walk through this, Um, I I do so realizing for some of you, this might be the the first time you've ever heard somebody say some of this stuff. First off, if you just look at this passage at face value, you'll, you'll notice that not only is sex permitted here, it's actually commanded. So, just a cursory view through this passage. It says, Drink water from your own cistern. Let your fountain be blessed. Take pleasure in the wife of your youth. Let her breasts always satisfy you. Be lost in her love forever. One of the things that all of those phrases have in common is their commands. It's not, you know, God's, the way that he talks about sexuality in his word is not, well, I guess if you have to, fine, just do it in this. No, it's a command to do this. And so first and foremost, to anybody who would say that the Bible, you know, views sex as this kind of negative, dirty, taboo thing, I would just point out to you, God would not command us to do something that in and of itself was a bad thing. I was reading a commentary this week, and, and uh, here's what it said. The language is commenting on this passage. I believe it was Derek Kidner, said, "'The language is frankly erotic.'" Uh, And he expounded on how and why it's erotic. I'm going to spare you that because I don't think it's necessary. But he said, "'The language is frankly erotic. It's highly important to see sexual delight in marriage as God-given. And history confirms that when marriage is viewed chiefly as a business arrangement, not only is God's bounty misunderstood, but human passion seeks other outlets.'" The point of this passage, uh, the the idea it it gets across here, uh, is that as soon as you let sexual love in a marriage go, you're actually getting away from God's design for marriage, and it invites all kinds of problems in that marriage because God has designed for sexual intimacy to be an essential, vital, core, and key element of what the marriage relationship is all about. So first off, it's commanded, but secondly... I just want to draw your attention to the fact that that not only according to the Bible is it commanded, but it's meant to be something that's delighted in. You know, please hear me. I'm not, I'm really trying to not be like crass for the sake of being whatever. But the command here, if you just read the passage, it's not just have sex, it's have a great time. All right, verses 18 and 19. Thank you verses 18 and 19. It says, Let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful fawn. Let her breasts always satisfy you. Be lost in her love forever. All right? Two things to point out here. Um, First off, when verse 18 says, Take pleasure in the wife of your youth, that's actually not a great translation because the Hebrew word, it's one Hebrew word that gets translated take pleasure, but the, the Hebrew word there does not have it doesn't have any sexual connotation to it whatsoever. The word literally means rejoice and be glad. It's a word that it's littered all over the New Testament. It shows up over 150 times, and you see it at key moments. So, for instance, when the nation of Israel would celebrate before God and remember how faithful he'd been in their like annual feasts. When, um, when Israel would, would um, be victorious against an enemy that obviously they should not have been victorious against. It was purely the grace of God. When, um, or even when individuals would have an unexpected answer to prayer in a way that completely changed their life, this is the same word that shows up, rejoice, they would rejoice and be glad. It's a word that literally means to find so much joy in something or someone that it literally changes how you look. Your, your countenance, your face lights up because you can't contain the joy welling up inside of you okay? That's what it means when it says to take pleasure in your spouse. That's what's being commanded there. Keep that in mind, and then pivot to the end of verse 19, this little phrase, be lost in her love forever. That word lost, any commentator will tell you that word lost literally means intoxicated. So you put these two ideas together, and here's, here's what you have. And, and I, I'm saying this realizing this is probably really going to challenge somebody's assumption that they came into the house of God with this morning. The speaker in Proverbs, this wise mentor, is, is trying to instill wisdom in a, in a student, a pupil, and this is essentially a, a, a paraphrase is this. He's, he's saying, let me tell you what marriage should be like. It should be two people moving through life together who, on the one hand, have such an incredible bond and friendship between them that their faces light up when they see each other. There's the friendship. There's the companionship, who, on the other hand, these two people are absolutely crazy, intoxicated, drunk, in love with each other. Now, I just want to point out how amazing it is. I don't think anybody in this room, myself included, can really um, appreciate exactly how profoundly passages like this have transformed the way that we in, in Western civilization think about marriage. All right? I'll just tell you, if if you're here today, and I'm sure this describes most people, if it seems obvious to you that, of course... Um, married people should be friends with each other. Of course, they should have a deep friendship. And of course, they should be passionately in love with each other. I'll just offer this to you. The only reason you think that way is because of the way the Bible changed the way civilization thought about marriage. Because in basically all ancient civilizations... And even in, in, you know, more traditional cultures on the planet today, nobody got married for, for the things listed in this passage. Nobody gets married for things like companionship or things like love. You married for utility. You married, you know, to pair strong families, to advance in society. And even into the Roman Empire, women, wives, were, were basically considered to be the legal property of their husband. And it was just kind of a given that while their role was to manage household affairs and continue the family line by giving their husband sons, it was a given on into the day of Jesus that men were going to look for things like intellectual companionship and sexual satisfaction outside of the home. I'm just, I just want to show you completely in the face of that. Here the word of God is holding up as the ideal, this idea that the marriage relationship is to on the one hand be a deep friendship that is on the other hand marked by passionate love. And so I've said everything I said to simply make this point that according to the Bible not only not only is sex something that is commanded but it's something that clearly by God's design he desires us to delight in. Now all of that is is really a challenge to what I've called the the prudish view of sex, this kind of mindset that views sex as basically something that's fundamentally gross or fundamentally taboo or it's just a necessary evil so that the you know Human population lives on. Completely in the face of that, the Bible in general, and in this passage specifically, it says, nope, sex is incredibly good. However, uh, what this passage also does is challenge what I called on the front end of our time together the pagan view of sex, which sees sex just like any other appetite. You know, th- this is the view that kind of basically this was the view of sex in the Roman Empire, which we are steadily heading back towards, which is another interesting kind of sociological study for another time. But in the Roman Empire, they basically looked at sex as um, just like a desire for food or for uh, drink or for rest. And as soon as you feel it, you should fulfill it in any way you you saw fit. That's basically how we're beginning to think society-wise, you know, as a whole. um, That's basically how we view sex. And I mentioned on the front end, that view of sex is wrong because it fails to recognize its power. And so secondly, we've talked about the goodness of sex. Now let's talk about the power of sex. And to do that, I want to look at the final three verses here. Verse 21. For a man's ways are before the Lord's eyes, and he considers all his paths. A wicked man's iniquities entrap him. He is entangled in the ropes of his own sin. He will die because there is no discipline and be lost because of his great stupidity. Now again here, you you start to dig into the, the, um, the Hebrew words. And, uh, and it's really revealing. In verse 21, when you see this phrase, uh, a man's ways are before the Lord's eyes, and he considers all his paths. That word paths, um, the Hebrew word that gets translated there, it literally means um, wagon marks. Now, what, it, what it's talking about here is the, and I'm sure you can picture this, it's the ruts that wagons make as they travel the same path over and over. Uh, and what happens is as a wagon does that, um, it gets easier and easier for that wagon to travel the same path. And over time, as those ruts begin to form and they get deeper, you eventually get to the point where that wagon really doesn't have any choice but to fall into those ruts. Uh, And and you arrive in a situation where it would take a tremendous amount of effort and energy to get that wagon out of those ruts. Now, I, I just want to point out here, if you were reading this passage as someone in the ancient Near East... Um, and you looked at the word that the author used here, the imagery would grab you, and you would immediately understand what they're getting across. What they're getting across, and I think this is a really sobering thought, is that sex creates trenches in the human heart exactly the same way that a wagon creates trenches in a path. Meaning that sex is, by God's design, uh, sex is so powerful that it creates ingrained patterns and habits of thinking and acting that the more um, one practices them, the more difficult they are to get out of and change. What this means is that any kind of, by the way, modern neurological studies that I've literally quoted to you before, but I decided not to put into this teaching just because I've read them to you before, uh, modern neuroscientific studies have have backed this up. What this passage is getting across is that any kind of misuse uh, of sexuality is going to be exactly as damaging as any other kind of addiction. That's why in the final two verses here, verse 22 and 23, it says, A wicked man's iniquities entrap him. He is entangled in the ropes of his own sin. He'll die because there's no discipline and be lost because of his great stupidity. That's the, I mean, just read it there. That's the language of addiction. What what we're left with here in this passage is the picture of somebody who's caught up in something that they are no longer capable of getting themselves out of. And, And so the overall point of this passage is that And and again, this completely flies in the face of the modern approach to sex. What this passage is teaching is that treating sex like it's just any other appetite, with uh, little to no bearing on on your whole person, to treat sexuality that way is utter foolishness. Uh, In any person or any society that seeks to remove all boundaries and restrictions from sexuality in the name of freedom will inevitably and ironically find itself enslaved by its own passions. If you would like a, um, an example of that, I would say look around you. You're living in it. You probably, as a society, you're probably living in the best example of that since the Roman Empire. Uh, and there's no signs that we're pulling back anytime soon. So if I can just recap here, what, what we're seeing in these verses is that on the one hand, there's an incredible goodness to sex which should cause us to value it, and see the beauty in it, while on the other hand, there's also an, an incredible power to sex which should cause us to respect it. And so the question remains, um, what, what exactly are we to do with it? If it's, if it's a good thing, but misusing it can so powerfully distort our lives, what is its proper context? And here's where we get to the last idea today, uh, the purpose of sex. And, and this is where we get to the seventh commandment, which I've saved for last because It's actually pretty quick and easy to explain, and it doesn't require a whole lot of um, follow-up to to get to the bottom of it. Um, When you zoom out from this passage, it's fundamentally about a father trying to instill wisdom in his son by telling him what the rest of the Bible uh, and what Jesus Christ himself taught, which is that any expression of human sexuality outside of the context of a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman in a relationship that we call marriage— Uh, is sexual immorality. I just want to say that one more time. By God's design, human sexuality is meant to be exclusively expressed inside of a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman in a relationship that we call marriage. And according to God, any expression of sexuality outside of that context is by definition sexual immorality, and it will distort your life uh, and if unchecked and undealt with, it will eventually destroy your life. Now, in the time that we have uh, remaining, which is not much, I want to um, ask and, and walk through a question that I, I, honestly, I can say I have not spent a great deal of time on um, before putting this teaching together. The question's why. why. Why is that the only parameter that God has given us as a safe outlet for human sexuality? That's a good one. That's actually the first one. I'm going to give you two answers to this. One is practical, and the other one is theological. Uh, First and foremost, uh, the reason that God has reserved um, sexuality uh, between one man and one woman in the context of marriage is because, according to the Bible, sex sex is one person's way to say to another person, I belong completely and exclusively to you. And the first time that we see this prescribed in Scripture is actually in the second chapter of the Bible. It's Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where it says, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, that, that, that phrasing, two will become one flesh, is obviously an allusion to sexual intimacy, but what it's getting across there is that when two people engage in sexual intercourse, there is a bond that forms between them that is so powerful that the distinction between them is no longer abundantly clear. And it's so much more than just a, a physical bond. It's a it's a it's a mental bond. It's an emotional bond. It's a psychological bond. It's in some ways it's a spiritual bond. And therefore, to rip sexuality out of its rightful context and to do what Proverbs says we're not to do, which is to just kind of let our sexuality spill in the streets, is is going to be profoundly damaging to all parties involved. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book The Meaning of Marriage, he speaks to this idea, and and here's how he puts it. Which, by the way, if if Whether you're single or married, I I can't recommend the book, The Meaning of Marriage, highly enough. Here's what he says. If sex is a method that God invented to do, quote, whole life entrustment and self-giving, it should not surprise us that sex makes us feel deeply connected to the other person, even when used wrongly. Sex makes you feel personally interwoven and joined to another human being as you are literally physically joined. Even if you are not legally married, you may find yourself very quickly feeling marriage-like ties, feeling that the other person has obligations to you, but that other person has no legal, social, or moral responsibility even to call you back in the morning. This incongruity leads to jealousy and hurt feelings and obsessiveness if two people are having sex but are not married. It makes breaking up vastly harder than it should be, it leads many people to stay trapped in relationships that are not good because of a feeling of having somehow connected themselves. Therefore, if you have sex outside of marriage, you'll have to steel yourself against sex's power to soften your heart toward another person and make you more trusting. The problem is that eventually sex will lose its covenant-making power for you even if you one day do get married. And here's how he bottom lines it. Ironically then, Sex outside of marriage eventually works backwards, making you less able to commit and trust another person. So there's the practical answer to that question, but the ultimate reason, according to the Bible, that it's wrong is not practical. It's actually theological. Uh, and, and, And what I'm about to share with you, I have never considered this before putting this teaching together. So I'd ask you to, to really try to lean in and follow my logic here and see if you've ever thought about it this way. Maybe you have, but I never have before this. <clears throat> All throughout the Bible, you can look in, in the Old Testament and in the, in the New Testament, God refers to, and I think this is a striking thing in the context of this teaching, God talks about his relationship with his people like it's a marriage, Uh, You certainly see powerful allusions to this in the New Testament with Ephesians 5 when Paul talks about marriage and, uh, you know, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. Uh, He talks about this in Romans chapter 7 and even at the end of the Bible in in Revelation 19, we're, we're told about this thing called the marriage supper of the Lamb. The culmination of human history when we're reunited with God is described as a marriage, us being the bride, Jesus being the true bridegroom. And so all over the Scripture, both Old and New Testament, God talks about his relationship with us like it's a marriage. That's why in the Old Testament, you specifically see this in the the major prophets, in the Old Testament when God talks about his people sinning against them, he doesn't just say, you're sinning against me. He says, you're being unfaithful to your covenant with me. God actually tells the nation of Israel over and over again that they're guilty of what's called spiritual adultery. And something that is crystal clear, God makes abundantly clear, is that when it comes to a relationship with him, would you please follow me here? When it comes to a relationship with God, intimacy and commitment always go hand in hand. One is never offered without the other. What what I mean by that? is you will never search the entire Bible all you want. You will never find God saying, you know what, I'm going to pour out my love and grace in your life in a personal life-changing way regardless of how you live or whatever God you serve. Let's just keep it casual. He never says anything like that. What God says instead, Scripture could not be more clear, is that if you want to have an intimate relationship with God, if you want to experience his love and his power and his peace and his presence in a deeply personal way that actually heals you, and actually comforts you, and actually progressively changes you throughout your life, the price of that intimacy with God is total commitment to God. Basically, what Scripture is telling you and I is that we have to approach God almost exactly the same way that a spouse approaches their spouse on a wedding day, with this kind of lifelong commitment, I'm yours until death do us part kind of thing. That's the price of intimacy with God. So having established that, let me simply ask you this. If that's how a relationship with God works, the question is, if that's how a relationship with God works, and you and I are made in that God's image, then why should our relationships be any different? The answer of the Bible is they're not any different. And so because when it comes to God, intimacy and commitment are always paired together, and we are made in that God's image So it is with us. That's why the Bible actually asserts that on a a deeply fundamental level, regardless of what we tell ourselves we believe, regardless of how we try to steal ourselves or numb ourselves, there's a part of us that knows when we practice intimacy outside the context of commitment that there's something that feels wrong about that. It's because we are violating the design in which we have been made. So we've nearly arrived at the end of our time together. I want to end today by doing something a little bit different um, and I just want to speak to two groups of people. First off, single people, and then secondly, people who are married. <clears throat> so first off, let me speak to people who are, who are listening to this, and um, you are single, and you have decided that you want to honor God with your sexuality. First and foremost, I want to say how much I admire you, And I honor you, and I respect you, because you are living in the midst of a culture that not only does not honor your commitment, but it openly repudiates it. And I can actually speak to this, um, you know, coming from a a, a personal place, and I'm going to warn you. I'm about to share a story with you that I was worried was a little bit too honest. Uh, So I I put it out there for the 9 a.m., and I told them, tell me if this is weird, and I won't tell the 11 a.m. I'm dead serious. They told me it was not weird, so if it is weird, blame the 9 a.m. and not me is the point of this, okay? Um, when I got out of the fire academy <clears throat> and got uh, to the firehouse that I was stationed at uh, and began to, um, you know, get to know my coworkers, um, we, got, we got talking one day at the firehouse around, around the table, as men sometimes do, about things of this nature. And... Um, I told them that I was a virgin. That's how the 9 a.m. responded as well. Um, and I didn't feel the need to hide that. I didn't feel the need to lie about that or come at that sideways because um, I was born in this uh, bubble where it was cool to live for Jesus. Uh, but when I told them that I was uh, a virgin, one of my coworkers immediately responded Uh, and and meant this in a pejorative uh, sense. He he let me know that he assumed from then on out that he simply assumed I was gay. (laughs) And and the reason, it was a really eye-opening thing for me because in his mind, the only possible explanation that a young man in his 20s was not sleeping with as many women as possible was that he was not, in fact, interested in women. And like I said, this was a really... Eye opening moment for me because I was lived in, you know, I was kind of born and raised in this bubble where it, that kind of thing was viewed with at least some level of honor and respect or it's noble or that kind of stuff. And I realized in that moment, Ryan, you are not in Kansas anymore. And actually, I went back to church and, and talked to some of the church leaders about it, just trying to think through, man, what does it mean to be a faithful witness and all this kind of stuff. And so I, I simply say that to say, and by the way, that was 15 years ago. Culture has changed a great deal since then, and it is far more hostile to that decision even now. And so, again, please, when I say this, please understand how genuine I'm being. If you're listening to this, you're a single person, and you have decided to honor God with your sexuality, we honor you in this church, and we respect, you know, what, what you're trying to do. In Amen. And we want to support you. Amen. Um, but the question is, how, how on earth do you find the strength to live that out with any kind of... Uh, endurance in the midst of a culture where not only do you have so many forces in your own heart, but, but now so many forces from outside of you that are, that are blowing against you. And I could, in answer to that question, how do you live out singleness with faithfulness, I could design a sermon series that answers that question. In the time that we have today, I just want to offer you this one answer. You need, if that's where you're at and you desire to honor God and be, you practice faithfulness to Jesus, you're going to need to experience what can be called the spousal love of Jesus Christ. Right, according to the Bible and specifically the New Testament, you see this in places like I mentioned it earlier, Ephesians 5, uh, Romans chapter 7, I believe it is, and even the end of the Bible. Um, in Revelation chapter 19, when it talks about the marriage supper of the lamb, what the Bible is getting across is that the marriage relationship um, and, and sexuality, which is really the core and, and the kind of foundation of that, that, that relationship, Really, all that is, those are just signposts that are meant to point forward to the joy that we will one day experience when we are completely and perfectly reunited with God through Christ. Now, I say that to say, one of the primary reasons that um, sexual desire, or even if you're listening to this, and it's not necessarily sexual, it's just a burning romantic desire, it's not overtly sexual, you just really want to be with somebody but you're not right now, one of the reasons that those desires have such a powerful hold on the human heart is because underneath that desire is this belief that if I could just find that perfect person out there who's going to perfectly love me, then you know, I, could, I would finally be whole and I'd finally be okay, and my life could finally begin, and I could finally be happy, and I'd finally be fulfilled. And if that's the place where you're coming from, you know that 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 exists within you, but you want to remain faithful to God, probably the best thing that I can offer you is you have to figure out how to talk to your own heart and remind yourself that even the best earthly marriage, even the best earthly romance simply cannot um, meet the deep needs for commitment or closure or vulnerability or intimacy that we look for in romance. All right. Ultimately, um, Jesus is the only spouse whose love can do that for us. And while we will only perfectly experience his love in a sustained way in glory, Scripture is remarkably clear that we can experience that love even here and now. And it comes as we, you know, it, 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 it comes in In times of private prayer, uh, in meditating on scripture, uh, in preaching the gospel to your own heart, in worshiping corporately with God's people, and being deeply involved in community with other people who are also dedicated to honoring Jesus. But the point is, you have to figure out ways to move yourself into a position where you you can experience the spousal love of Jesus Christ. It's just your only hope. Secondly, and lastly, we'll be done with this, I'm going to speak to married people. Um... There's a, chance, there's a chance that there are some married people that, that listened earlier when we talked about you know the idea, the ideal that Scripture holds out for marriage, that it's this, this deep friendship that's marked by this passionate love. Those are kind of the two prongs. There's a chance that there were some married people that, that heard that, and, and you thought about your own marriage, and you said, you know what? That is what my marriage is like, and thank God. And I just want to say, if that's where you're coming from, that's good for you, but I'm not talking to you right now. I'm talking to everybody else, okay? Uh, If you're here and you're married and you heard what Scripture holds up as this ideal that God desires for us in marriage, but then you thought about your own marriage and you realize how far your marriage is from that and you want to have that so badly but you don't even know where to begin, what are you supposed to do? I want to offer you the same exact thing, actually, that I just offered single people. This is a hard word. We are almost done here. Let me just, would you please consider whether or not there's any truth to what I'm about to say? My conviction, and I've I've certainly seen this in my own marriage time and time and time again, that so often the issue underneath the problems we experience in our marriages is that we are looking to our spouse and asking them to be what only Jesus can be for us. Now, in saying that, I realize there are some people here, your spouse has legitimately hurt you. Your spouse has legitimately sinned against you. Your spouse has legitimately damaged your relationship. That can be true, and this can be true. But I believe if all of us got honest before God, and you're going to have to search yourself to see if this is true for you, if we got honest, we would admit that our hearts are these idol-making factories that tend to look to a spouse To demand and demand that they be what Jesus can be for us. And as long as we do that, we will move through life constantly feeling like we're not loved enough, we're not respected enough, we're not understood enough. And that issue, although we have not married a perfect spouse and they have things they need to work on, that issue primarily is coming from us. And what we need is the same thing that single people need, which is to experience the, the perfect love from the perfect spouse, Jesus Christ. Because it's his love and it's his love alone that will empower us either to live a life of singleness with faithfulness or it will help us become the kinds of people that create the kinds of marriages that glorify his name. We're done today, and so I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to close with communion, and I know what you're thinking. (laughs) How am I going to get from this to communion (laughs) like this? What we just established is that single or married, wherever we're coming from this morning, what we need more than anything else is to experience the love of Jesus in a more than intellectual way. We need to experience it in a personal way. Jesus, when he gave us communion, which we also call the Lord's table or the Lord's supper, the reason that he gave us bread and drink to consume by way of rem- of, of reminding ourselves of who he is and what he's done, communion as a physical exercise is meant to remind us that Jesus Christ did not simply die so that we could go to heaven when we die. Jesus Christ gave his body to be broken and his blood to be spilled for us so that the deep hunger and the deep thirst of our souls can be satisfied even here and even now through a personal, ever-deepening relationship with him. And so as you approach the table, you take the elements, you take them back to your seat and take some time before God during this last song, I think this is an amazing time for all of us to simply still ourselves before God, to search ourselves, to get honest with ourselves about all the other things and all the other people that we have looked to to be and do for us that only Jesus Christ can be and do for us. And in admitting all of those things, communion is a time for us to repent and to rededicate ourselves to living a life of faithfulness to him as he has been so faithful to us. That's it. That's all. Let's take communion. We're going to take communion in just a moment here, but I wanted to read some passages to you from Revelation. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. Saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God the Almighty has begun to reign. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb are fortunate. He also said to me, These words of God are true. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. And he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer. Because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new whether you're single or married this morning, that's the, that's the wedding day that we're all waiting for. So let's wait for it well. Amen. You can take the bread and the juice. <clears throat> and when you're done, you can stand. I'll close this in prayer. Father God, please, please help us to simply experience how much you love us so that we could stop looking for what only you can give us somewhere else. Please help us to experience what it is uh, to have an intimate relationship with our Creator. God, and please help us to set our hope on the day that I just read about in the book of Revelation, when we will be perfectly reunited with you by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. Wherever, Wherever we are this morning, whatever it is you call us to walk through between now and that day, would you please help us to know that we're not walking through it alone, and that one day, Every desire that we have that simply cannot be fulfilled in this life, it's going to be fulfilled in you. And in the midst of a culture that so brazenly casts aside what you have said uh, regarding human sexuality, please help us to be a shining light to a world that desperately needs one. And I can't help but think that in a culture like ours, there's an incredible opportunity for God's people to practice real holiness and uniqueness by simply choosing to, to live with integrity and faithfulness before you, would you give us the power to do it? Whether single or married, would you give us the power to do it? By grace through faith, in the name of Jesus, all God's people said, amen. amen. Thank you, and Lord willing, we'll see you here next Sunday.